Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We've been considering the introduction to Paul's letter, and now we move in to um, beginning the heart of his argumentation there. And Paul has just given us amazing, glorious news that the righteousness of God is now revealed, uh, put on display. It's unleashed in the world through the gospel, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's power for salvation to everyone who believes is being set forth in the gospel. But it raises a question, such glorious news as that does make us wonder, what do people need to be saved from? Why is rescue so necessary? Um, Why is the saving action of God something that we need? And that's what he begins to address in our section of the text this morning, Um, And he begins, as scripture often does, by calling us first to consider what's wrong with what we see around us. (laughs) What's going on in the world out there as we think of it? And we'll see this morning that what Paul's really doing with his audience there, that that church uh, that's there in Rome, is he's speaking with them of what they would know and what they would see on a daily basis of how things are on the streets of the capital city of the Roman Empire. But then, as the Bible always does, it takes our understanding from what's out there and the finger pointing that we may do this way, and it turns it around and makes us look in here and help us see the need that we all have for the saving work of God through Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of a preview of of the journey that will go on through this passage this morning. And so I want to read together, or I'll read for you our text, Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. Um, You can find this on page 939 in a pew Bible if you'd like to follow along there. It's also printed on pages 9 to 10 in your bulletin. So we'll be looking at Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. Hear God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed in passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. And they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, so far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we consider this weighty text this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you humbly asking for your help. We thank you that you have revealed your truth in your word, and even as we have just read, we realize that any time we come to the truth, it's a very dangerous thing. That deep within us is an innate desire to not listen and to twist these things, to reject what you say and to go our own way. And we come this morning with proclivities in our hearts to do this in all sorts of ways. And you know what those are. And so we pray that you would help us, that by your spirit, you would help us to hear your truth about who you are and who you've created us to be, that you would confront our pride, that you would encourage us in our weakness and failing, that you would point us most of all to the Lord Jesus and what he has done and is doing in all of us in whatever particular things we may struggle with. So we ask your help this morning by your Spirit's work that we would hear and believe and be changed by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll consider this text this morning in three points. Uh, The first is humanity's exchange. The second point is God's response And the third point will be glory regained. So we have humanity's exchange, God's response, and glory regained. So let's consider, first of all, humanity's exchange. And we see this in particular in verses 18 to 23. Paul jumps into why salvation and righteousness of God in the gospel has to be revealed. Why is that necessary? And it's because of the human condition. And Paul begins very broadly in his argumentation that's going to continue for a few chapters, and it's important to keep that in mind, but he starts really broadly by telling the universal story of the human heart. And the particular aspect of that story that he's telling here is speaking of a Gentile context, a non-Jewish context, someone who was growing up and being raised in a world where they did not have the Old Testament law or God's special revelation in the Scriptures. Later, he's going to address how it's the same root problem even for the Jewish person who has the scriptures and has the law. But here, he speaks most broadly of all mankind and how God has created things and how humanity has responded. And so what we notice, first of all, in humanity's exchange is God's revelation. God's revelation. God has revealed himself to all people. This is an amazing thing, but we find it there in verse 19. It says, 
what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And what we see that Paul's arguing here is that there's this innate or internal knowledge of God that is present in each person just by the fact of being an image bearer of God. Verse 32, at the end of our section, it goes as far as to say that we as people, we know God's righteous decree and that the penalty for transgressing that decree or for going against those things is death. That's something that has been written on our hearts that's hardwired into us in the very nature of our creation. But it's not only this internal knowledge that we have, but Paul also says in verse 20 that God has revealed himself in creation. There's this innate internal knowledge we have, but then there's what theologians would call a derivative knowledge. We can look around and we can also see things about God. And it's actually amazing. The invisible God, whom we can't see, created the world in such a way as to reveal things about himself to all people. It says his power and his divine nature, they are clearly perceived from what has been made. As we look around and see these things, we can understand these things about God. And in fact, Paul is telling us that God's revelation of himself is so sufficient that he says all people are without excuse there in verse 20. And so God has revealed himself in our creation and in creation. But what is humanity's response to this revelation that God has given? Well, we see humanity's response throughout. It says, even though these things are clearly perceived in verse 20, and that people knew God generally in verse 21, maybe not in a saving way, or for surely not in a saving way, but knowing these things about God, it says their response to this knowledge, verse 18 tells us, is to suppress the truth. What they do in response to what is clear is they twist their minds to see things differently, becoming futile in their thinking. And Paul says everything about them is affected by this. Their hearts become foolish and darkened. And it's not only internally in their minds, in their hearts, that this is happening, but he's saying humanity does not act in accord with this truth. Their actions follow this as well. Instead of honoring God, instead of living according to his ways and giving thanks to him for his gifts, they did things their own way. It says, claiming to be wise in verse 22, they became fools. Verse 23 says, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling the creation. And then he gives that language there of birds and animals and creeping things, which we don't say much in Scripture unless we're going back to Genesis 1 and talking about the creeping things of God's creation. And what he's showing here is that people have worshipped images of things and of other people that have been clearly made by God and are not the glorious immortal creator God himself. And verse 25 summarizes it so well. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature instead of God the creator. 
This is, Paul says, the universal condition of humanity. This is what has happened to people at all times, everywhere. And verse 18 says that the condition is one of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness indicating there's this vertical suppression of the truth and rejection of God as creator and his glory, but then also unrighteousness speaking of the ways people work against his revelation for his moral order in the world. It's pretty dark. What is God's response then to this whole person rebellion of the people who were created to reflect his image and worship him as God? Well, that takes us back up to verse 18, doesn't it? It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is his perfect, his holy response to unrighteousness in the world and in us. What it means is that a truly good and right and holy God cannot let this unrighteousness go unaddressed in his creation. Wrong has to be punished in order for him to truly be just, especially, Paul is saying, for wrongs as grievous as idolatry. Now, when we hear the phrase God's wrath or the wrath of God, um, it's something that's not spoken about a ton in our day or maybe not spoken about well. And I think there are two ways that we can go wrong when we think about this topic, two primary ways. One is in our discomfort of hearing of God's wrath, we may jettison it from Scripture. (laughs) We can kind of downplay those passages. Uh, One theologian I was reading said he was at a gathering with many types of professing Christian ministers. And they were singing together at a conference and they sang in Christ alone. And he was shocked when he looked around because he realized that many of these ordained Christian ministers would not sing the line, the wrath of God was satisfied because they've erased it from their understanding of the gospel. We need the doctrine of God's wrath because scripture says it, because it's true, but also because it's intimately connected to the gospel. It is what tells us what we need to be saved from. And when we step back and look at it honestly, it is our only source of true comfort for evils that are done in this world, is that a just God is going to one day make things right. And he does so by pouring out his wrath. But while we may be tempted to jettison it from Scripture, the other temptation is to speak of it in a way that's not in accord with Scripture. To see God's wrath as some uncontrolled venting of of pent-up anger. To speak of it as disconnected from his attributes of love and mercy and goodness. To fail to hold God's wrath as, as this right and fitting response from what Scripture also says of the fact that he does not delight in the death of the wicked and that he desires that none should perish. And so we have to make sure that when we speak of God's wrath, we do so as God's good and just wrath and not our human distortions of it 
based upon our own experiences of anger or injustice. Well, before we go on to consider how God shows his wrath, which is what the passage goes on to say, I think we should pause for a moment just to reflect upon what Paul says has caused this in the first place. Because it's actually an answer that we may not immediately think of. You know, when we look at the world around us, it can be baffling to us sometimes. We see evil and wickedness that may be different than ways that we express it. We see how out of control things seem to get. But Romans 1 helps us understand why that is. Because it tells us that at the core of humanity's problem, it's ultimately a worship issue. It's a worship issue. And this helps us understand some of the the tensions and the hostility that we feel in the world as we engage as Christians. It helps us understand why these conflicts in society about right and wrong are so intense. Because these things aren't about just preferences. Ultimately, at their core, they are questions of who will I honor as God? Who will decide what is right and true? Who will tell me how to live and how to love? And so when we stop and we realize, okay, this is all rooted in that human condition of idolatry, of failing to see God in his glory for who he is and acknowledging our proper place as creatures before him to serve and worship and thank him. And we start to see the the depths of, of how this twistedness may unfold. And what it does is it helps us kind of answer the question, what are we going to do about it? If, if things can seem this bad and, and this out of control, when we realize that at its core it's a worship issue, we see that true change is going to have to go beyond merely human efforts. The gospel is the power of God to address this very problem. You know, we need policies and laws that help restrain evil and help restrain wickedness because where sin goes unchecked, we see the distortion of it in this passage. But it also reminds us that what we need most is a reorientation of our hearts toward God. The the public witness of the church of true gospel change that comes through Jesus Christ. And what I find really encouraging, we can sometimes wonder, how in the world can we make any difference in all that's happening? But part of what Scripture reminds us of is that our one-on-one witness with our family and our neighbors and the people that we interact with at school and with our coworkers, it, that is most often God's way of dealing with the heart issue of wrong worship through our gospel witness with them. And so it's a call and an encouragement to faithfully live this way in the midst of all that we see. So it shows us the the nature of the true problem that we see all around us. But this section also calls us to stop and to look inward, doesn't it? You know, it can be easy to hear Isaiah 44 can be easy easy to look at Romans 1 and hear idolatry and think, glad that's not me. (laughs) Last time I checked, I wasn't out there um, 
cutting down some wood, building a fire, and then bowing down to it. So, cool, can check Isaiah 44 off the list, right? But Paul's passage here helps us see how deep idolatry really goes. Because what is idolatry at its core? It's a question of who you worship. It's not just where do you go on Sunday morning, but it's also the question of what do you bow down to during the week? What do you give your attention and honor and trust to? What do you look to to deliver you from the trials and difficulties of this life? Is it your career? Is it your happiness? Is it your appetites? Is it other people's opinion of you? Is it building your own little kingdom? It also asks us, what do you do with God's truth? With all of the truth that God has revealed in his word, how much is God's truth determining how you live? Or is it your perception of how things should be or how you want things to be? Or are we really bowing before the truth of God's word as our creator about every area of our lives? Idolatry, as Paul speaks about it, involves terms like serving and thanking. And those are good heart checks for us, aren't they? Who are we really serving? Is it ourselves? Is it others? Is it God, most of all? And then how thankful are we each moment of the day for God's gifts, for what he has created as gifts for us to enjoy? Or how much are we grasping those things and taking them and demanding them for ourselves to use how we wish? You see, honoring and serving and thanking God are the opposite of idolatry. This passage helps us see how far deep it still goes within us, doesn't it? And how desperately each of us still needs God's grace to have a heart rightly oriented to him. And so we've seen humanity's exchange, the truth about God for a lie, the worship of him for the worship of idols. But then what is God's response? That's what we see secondly. And our second point is God's response. And we see this in verses 24 to 32. Verses 18 to 23 told us why God's wrath is being revealed. He has to deal with human unrighteousness, right? And chapter 2, verse 5 is going to tell us that a day of wrath and future judgment is coming. But did you notice that in Romans 1, what it says is that God's wrath is presently being revealed among us. It's presently being made manifest in our lives. How is that? by God giving humanity up to their sin. Verse 24 says, Therefore, in response to this, how is this taking place? Therefore, God gave them up. The present revelation of God's wrath is to give humanity up to the consequences of its own sin. Giving them up, or it's also said handing them over. It could be translated either way. It's imagery of a just judge who renders his verdict and then he hands the guilty party over to the jailer for their punishment. And this handing over 
is this bell that tolls three times throughout the passage. Verse 24, 26, 28. And each time it does, it's highlighting different aspects of these consequences that we've been handed over to. And by the end, we're just overwhelmed by the destruction that idolatry has caused for humanity. And part of what Paul is showing here, as hard as this is to hear, is that God's punishment is perfectly fitting for humanity's sin. In effect, he's saying, you want to exchange my glory for that of idols. You want to use your mind to suppress the truth that I have revealed to you. You want to use your body to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Then I will hand you over to the results and you will see what rejecting me does to you in your entirety, mind and body. And so he explains then in this section how this handing over affects two things, our bodies and our minds. And the first thing that we see is it causes dishonored bodies. Dishonored bodies in verses 24 to 27. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Do you notice what's happening here? They didn't see fit to honor God with their body. And therefore, as a result, God gives them over to their desires to use their bodies in dishonorable ways. Paul uses sexual immorality and homosexuality uh, in particular as illustrative, as illustrations of what happens as a result of suppressing and turning from the truth. Now, it's probably not shocking to you that in our day, these topics are highly controversial, aren't they? And really, I I think we can be honest and just say, we're facing two ideological extremes when we come to Romans 1 or what the Bible says about sexuality. On the one side, people are demanding the church's unqualified acceptance of homosexuality. And then on the other side, they're demanding an equally unqualified condemnation, which makes even struggling with these things sub-Christian and really leaves no place in the church. And what I want us to, to see from this is that what Paul says here, it was controversial in his own day, just as it is in our day. We're not the only society Uh, where there's controversy about how we conduct ourselves sexually. There were a variety of views of sexuality within Paul's culture. For those of a Jewish background, they would have been outwardly appalled by what they considered to be Gentile sins that good and right Jewish people didn't participate in. Outside Judaism, though, the broader culture generally thought that marriage was useful for procreation. Having kids is what would take place between a husband and a wife. But then outside of that, many other acts were allowable and even encouraged recreationally. Men weren't expected to limit themselves to their wives. It was generally fine to use prostitutes, slaves, or other men to satisfy their sexual desires as long as they were of a lower status than you 
or younger than you. And so when it comes to male sexuality in Rome in Paul's day, it could be described as aggressively bisexual for how men were encouraged to conduct themselves. And then as is often typical, the expectations for women were different. And there was kind of a double standard of how they were viewed when they participated in the very same things, much of which they were called to participate in, not by their own choice, but by the men who were subjecting them to these things. And so we're reminded as we look around and as we consider the things we see in society, the things we battle with in our own hearts, that there is nothing new under the sun. (laughs) But notice what Paul says then as he speaks into their context and ours. He affirms what the rest of Scripture says about sexuality. He affirms what is often described as a traditional, historical, Christian sexual ethic. And it starts with marriage. That's where we have to start when we come to this question. That marriage is a one flesh union between two sexually different persons, male and female. And then that leads us to what sexuality is or what sex is. All sex outside of marriage, whether that's with the same sex or the opposite sex, is therefore immoral or sinful. And so that's That's what Paul's saying, and that's what Scripture argues. Um, And we could go into that. Some seek to argue that what Paul's condemning here is a certain type of same-sex relationships. And this would be called affirming theology. And, And what it's saying is an abusive or promiscuous form of homosexuality is what Paul's condemning. But if it's in the context of a committed, loving relationship, same-sex relationships are okay. But Paul shows here very clearly that that's not the case. When Paul speaks of exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, he's echoing back to the creational natural design of Genesis 1. He's using the same language of male and female union. You see, Paul's not concerned with questions here of the motivation or the commitment of the relationship. It's the action between same-sexed persons that Paul is saying is against nature and against God's design. And when he says that these men are committing, who are committing these acts are receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, he's saying what he's arguing throughout that the sins themselves and the brokenness that follows from those sins is the righteous judgment of God for rejecting him and for his way and his ways. And so Paul here is clearly upholding the traditional Christian sexual ethic. But it's also important to notice what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that same-sex immorality is the pinnacle of depravity. He's not saying here somehow that this is an unpardonable sin, that same-sex behavior or even desires would send you straight to hell, or that he's disgusted with you as a person if you have desires this way or if you have done these things. And what's important for us not to miss here is he begins this section in in verse 24 
with sexual immorality in general, heterosexual sexual immorality, things like lust and adultery and fornication and pornography. And then he, after this, of of highlighting homosexual behavior as illustrative of these things, he goes on to list 21 other sins that all have that same root in idolatry that he is denouncing. And what he's arguing here is we're all in need of the same saving grace to deal with the brokenness of idolatry. And he's showing that how we use our bodies sexually is symptomatic of a greater worship problem, isn't it? And if we think about it, it makes so much sense. Because our sexuality, is to, it's a pointer for us to the deepest satisfaction of the love and intimacy we were created for in relationship with God. And when we reject God, we experience brokenness in our sexuality of all forms. And what he's doing here is he's using this illustratively. He's saying... And and not that it's not true, it is true, but it's a vivid illustration of what is going on in all of us when we reject God as our creator. What he's saying is when you look around and you see what is happening, when people live in accord with same-sex desires and go according to those practices, it's a vivid illustration of what's going on in all of us when we reject God as our creator and we reject his truth for how we are to live. Those things are often internal and hard to see, but this gives an illustration that you can see from the outside and understand, ah, that is showing the exchange that he's saying is at the root of all these things that I struggle with in my heart. And when we give into idolatry of any form, we experience the brokenness and the hurt that comes with rejecting God's ways. And so Paul has been showing here that part of God's judgment against this exchange of his glory is a dishonorable use in our bodies that's particularly seen in our sexuality. But that's not the only result of failing to honor God. He explains that God also gave humanity up to debased minds, to dishonored bodies, and then secondly, in this point, to debased minds. And we see that in verses 28 to 31. And and Paul breaks out into the most extensive vice list in Scripture. He lists 21 sins. Now, There's another sin list at the time of 147. And so Paul doesn't take the record uh, when he's dealing with this. But in Scripture, he lists 21 sins that all flow from the same root of idolatry. And he ends with a fourfold list, leaving humanity as barely recognizable as image bearers of God. We don't have time to go into the whole list today, but hear how these last four really summarize so much of it. He says they're foolish. We can't think wisely. Instead, we're arrogant and haughty and boasters, as he said before. They're faithless, foolish and faithless, not oriented rightly toward God. He says being God-haters is is part of this whole thing. He says they're heartless, no empathy or compassion toward others. Instead, caught up in sins like strife and gossip and slander. 
They're ruthless, he says, that humanity, when we suppress God's truth, shows no restraint. Malicious, murderers, rebelling against parents, doing evil. All of this, Paul says, are consequences of turning from the truth of the glory of God. And then he gives this summary verdict in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We see that humans, by nature, know that these things are wrong and that they are sins against God which deserve condemnation and death. And rather than repenting, the human condition is to continue in them and even to promote these actions by encouraging others to go along with us. By the end of this section, which I understand has been heavy and hard, (laughs) but by the end of this section, the question that we're kind of left wondering is what separates humanity, the image bearers of God, from the beasts around us? (laughs) What is left of the image when we forsake and exchange the glory of God for a lie. God has given us over to debased minds and dishonored bodies. You know, Scripture talks of sin in many ways. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is a debt that needs repaid. But here, Paul highlights for us an aspect of sin that I think is important to remember that sin is also defacing the image of God. That sin, when we turn against God in his ways, it eats at the core of what it means to be human as those who were made to reflect God in his glory by worshiping and serving and honoring him. One theologian says you you could think of it as, you know, those golden statues like an Oscar, right? And that's Mankind created in the image of God, male and female, one of those statues to represent his glory in the world. And with sin and with this idolatry, we take that statue and we vomit all over it. And then we take that statue and that's used to bring God, supposed to be used to bring God glory. We say, I'll scrub the toilet with this. That is what our sin does. It twists the things about us that were created so good and so right, and it distorts them in ways that bring brokenness and pain. So we still have one point in the sermon, and I just want to speak with you candidly about it. This sermon, more than any I've preached in a long time has caused me much angst and has actually caused me many tears. And it's not because I'm scared of being canceled for saying these things. It's not because I'm worried about being put in jail for upholding a Christian sexual ethic. I think that's something we should all be prepared for as believers, but but that's not it. It's the weight of understanding that the truths that are talked about here intersect with everyone's life here so deeply and so profoundly. There are some of you here who on a daily basis are going to places of work and school 
or in your family encountering hostility because you are lovingly seeking to uphold what the Bible says about how we were created to function sexually. And I know there are others of you here where this has just really blown apart your world as you have walked with loved ones who are beset by the profundities of this struggle, of these desires and confusion and gender dysphoria and all types of things related to what's spoken about here. Sexual immorality of all kinds and the brokenness and the ripples and the waves that that sends out, not only in the person, but in those who love and care for them. And I know that there are others of you here who are hearing this passage and you're saying, I am not attracted to the opposite sex. I struggle profoundly with attraction to the same sex and I hear what the Bible is saying here and I'm saying, what does God think about me? Is he disgusted by me? What does Jesus have to do with me? Is there a way to follow Jesus in all of this? Is there a place for me in this church, in this struggle? Is there a place for me in any church? And the weight of saying, address all of that, (laughs) all those places, and that's just a, those are just aspects of it. There's a whole spectrum in between. But there's a weightiness to it, a storied pain that's represented here. And so, If I can ask you to endure one more point, (laughs) the purpose of the point is this. It's what do all of us, though, regardless of where we fall in all of that, what do we need more than anything? And what we need more than anything is to keep going in Paul's argument. Because what we have to remember here is that this is just the beginning of a multi-chaptered argument that is unfolding of why we need the gospel of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so point three is glory regained. You know, at this point in the argument, what Paul is doing is very strategic. He's bringing along those who already think that these things are wrong. And he's bringing them along where they're saying, wow, I can't believe they would do that. (laughs) Amen. Rome is so bad. I've seen what goes on in Rome. There's no excuse for this kind of behavior. And then, as we come to chapter 2, verse 1, which if you have your Bibles opened, I'd encourage you to look at. I'm going to read it. But Paul masterfully turns the tables, and he points the fingers from out there, and he points them directly back on us all. Hear what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What Paul is doing here is a biblical sting operation. And he says, gotcha. He says, the outward expressions of your idolatry may look different than what he's just talked about, but it's the same inward heart of rejection of God and his ways. He says, therefore, you have no excuse because you practice 
the very same things. Paul is leveling our pride. And when he comes to chapter 3, verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He said that we know that those who practice such things deserve to die. And then in 6.23, he reminds us, for the wages of sin is death. I don't know how you size yourself up, whether it's out there comparing yourselves to others or as you come here on a Sunday morning. But Paul reminds us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross because we all deserve God's wrath for our idolatry and our sin. But then Paul goes on to say that the punishment was paid for our idolatry. And you know that ominous bell that tolls three times throughout? God gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up. It changes to this glorious sound as Romans continues on. Because as we come to chapter 4, verse 25, it says that Jesus our Lord was given up by God for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Think about that. The one who for not one moment failed, never, not for one moment failed to give worship and service to God. Jesus, the very unstained image of the glory of God, he was given up. He was broken. He was pierced. He was shamed. He was distorted beyond recognition as a human killed on a cross for us so that we who have stained and defaced the image of God could be forgiven so that God's wrath could be satisfied for every idolatrous moment of our lives. Paul goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 9, Since therefore we have been justified, we have been declared righteous by Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And as we come to chapter 8, we find that God's giving up to wrath has been forever changed by the work of Christ. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what happens in God's giving as we come to Christ? We are no longer condemned. We are no longer under wrath, but we are now under the never-ending giving of God's grace to us. What a wondrous change. But what about the mess? What about the mess that's left from Romans 1? This broken, beast-like condition that we find ourselves in, the, the defacing of the image. God has begun, even now, a process of restoring that image in us, of polishing out those deep scratches and mending the cracks and wiping away the layers of shame of bringing to life that which has died and reordering the desires we have that have been distorted and are destroying us. He's sanctifying our minds and our hearts with his truth. He's reorienting them to, with his holy love and, and holy affection. It's not immediate. 
And some remnants of the fall will be with us until we die. But it's a process. It's a journey. We still struggle. But we've been washed. We have had a bath, but we still need our feet washed by his loving grace as we continue. And that list in Romans 1, it is everything that Jesus was not. (laughs) And in Jesus, we see the image bearing of God that we were made for. And the Bible says that glory is being restored in us now by the very spirit of Christ himself. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. And one day, that transforming process, it will be complete. For Paul, the gospel does not end in Romans 1. And neither should it for us. The loss of glory is not the end of the story. Paul is not ashamed because he has confidence of the glory that will be restored one day when Christ returns. In Romans 8, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. For all of creation right now is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What is that? The final redemption of our bodies. That we will be raised one day and revealed in the glory that we were created for. Everything that has been undone by ungodliness and unrighteousness will one day be restored. And everything that Adam didn't attain and lost is regained by the saving action of God through Jesus Christ. That's the power of God for salvation in the gospel. And so what is our response to all of this? We take a humble, honest look at our own hearts and our true condition, and then we look at the saving work of God in Jesus Christ. And we place our whole trust and hope in him, whether that's for the first time or the millionth time. God's good news for us today is that everything wrong in Romans 1 is made right by the power of God through what Jesus has done for us that we receive simply by faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would use your word to change us. We pray that you would use it to help us less and less reject the truth and more and more worship and serve and honor you because of what you have done in us and for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this we give you thanks. We ask it all in his name. Amen.